today because we have a guest preacher today. And it is my Old Testament professor, Dr. Peter Vogt, who is now the current dean of Bethel Seminary, where I get the opportunity to teach adjunct and be a part of that ministry there. And I am so excited because Peter is the one who taught me biblical Hebrew, which is the, the language that the Old Testament is written in. And this was a really important thing because I only cried once in one class. Because it's really hard to learn a biblical language, it turns out. And the fact that I only cried once has to do with how wonderful of a professor that he was. And also because he is a top-notch Hebrew scholar and Old Testament scholar. And so we're so excited to have Dr. Vogt, as I know him, or Peter, be able to bring today a kickoff for our first genre of the Bible that we're going through this year. We're going to go through the Bible by genre. And so we're looking at historical narrative, and we're calling it the backstory. And we're saying if we want to be people who live into God's story now, then it's important that we understand the backstory of God, the many stories that come together to form the big story, the meta-narrative, so that we can live more intentionally into our role in God's story today. So people at home and people here at Quincy, let's welcome Dr. Peter Vogt. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be with you here at, at Mill City. Thanks to all of you who are here, who have come out uh, in this balmy Sunday morning. And uh, for those of you at home, I thank you for, for tuning in. I finished a master's degree at Bethel Seminary in 1997. And soon after that, my wife and I, we moved to, to England. And we moved to England for my PhD studies. We lived there for four years. We really loved our time in, in England. Uh, it was a wonderful time for us in our marriage, in, for me and my work. But we also found ourselves occasionally experiencing moments of culture shock. Anyone who's lived extensively overseas or traveled overseas has undoubtedly experienced those moments where things are, are different and strange. And one of the most vivid examples that I recall was a time when I was eating lunch at the university cafeteria, or the refectory, as we learned to call it. This was just a few weeks after we had uh, moved there. And while I was eating, a staff member from the Bible department, who was also an Anglican priest, came and, and joined me. My wife, Cammie, and I had met him uh, at some school function fairly, fairly recently. We chatted a little bit about how good it was to, to get to know each other's uh, wives. And as we chatted, he said, it was, it was good to meet your wife the other day. She's really homely. Now, I was shocked. <laughs> Here was a colleague, a pastor, uh, no less, calling my wife ugly to my face. Now, how do you respond to that? I knew that punching him in the nose was probably not the right response, but how was I supposed to respond? Now, he must have seen that something was wrong. He saw the anger rising up in me, and, and he asked what was wrong, and I explained. And then he explained that in the UK, the word homely doesn't mean unattractive or plain. It refers to someone who's oriented towards the home, a good homemaker, someone who makes other people comfortable. He wasn't insulting my wife. He was paying her a compliment. Now, whenever we're in different cultures, we can find ourselves coming up against these kinds of situations more and more often. Things just aren't the same as we're used to or as we expect them to be. The more we travel and the more we encounter other cultures, the more we recognize this and, and we can then change our expectations. We learn to experience the different culture on its own terms instead of trying to make it conform to our expectations. 
Now, I want to suggest this morning as we continue this series that you've been in and starting to look at these genres, I want to suggest that when we read the Bible, we're going on a cross-cultural journey. Though it may seem familiar to us, it's you know, like many other books that we have, and, and for most of us, it's published in Grand Rapids, Michigan, um, but it, it reflects vastly different cultures, peoples, and languages. And if we want to understand it well, we have to learn to adjust our expectations and to take it on its own terms, rather than trying to make it conform to our expectations. Now, this is perhaps most true when it comes to the narratives, the stories that we find in the Bible. I think this is true because, first of all, the, the narratives, the stories, tend to be most familiar to us. And, and so we, we, we're comfortable with them. We also have the, the genre of narratives in our own culture. So we're familiar with stories. We know how to interpret stories, and we feel on solid ground. That's not true when it comes to other genres, things like apocalyptic literature, for example, the book of Revelation or, or part of the book of, of Daniel. We don't feel as, as solid in approaching those because we don't have those in our culture. Now, thankfully, we have people like Dr. John Dunn who can explain all these things for us and help us with, uh, with things like apocalyptic literature. But see, if we don't recognize that we're dealing with another culture, we're going to experience culture shock when we are reading these, uh, these texts. Or at a minimum, we're going to misinterpret what we're reading. The British author L.P. Hartley opened his book, The Go-Between, with the sentence, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. I want to suggest that the Bible is another country. They do things differently there. And so we're going to take a look at historical narrative and how we might approach that as, as cross-cultural travelers and how to learn from that. We're going to take a look at a very familiar passage to most of us, and we're going to see how we might better understand it when we recognize that we're dealing with another country, another culture. We're going to focus on Genesis chapter 1. Now, because of the length of that chapter and because of the fact that most of us are probably somewhat familiar with it, I'm not going to read it all, but I'm going to make some comments on it, and we're going to look at some parts of it. Now, typically when we approach Genesis, and in particular Genesis chapter 1, we approach it with our 21st century questions in mind. So we often have questions about the mechanics of creation. Should we understand the days being described as 24-hour days or something else? What about evolution? Is this chapter arguing against evolution? When we understand that when we read Genesis, we're visiting a, another culture, we begin to change our expectations. And that's going to shed some different light on the passage. You see, Moses didn't write Genesis 1 with Darwin in mind. He didn't write with 21st century Minnesotans in mind. Instead, Moses wrote Genesis 1 to teach his audience what they needed to know in order to live out their calling and their mission to be the people of God and to be witnesses to the world around them of, of who God is and what he's up to. He's writing to give a new and a different worldview to the Israelites. Remember that the Israelites had experienced 430 years of enslavement in, in Egypt. And so inspired by God, Moses is writing to counter the worldview that they had fostered and developed while they were in Egypt. He wants to help correct the false understandings that they may have developed of who God is and what he's up to in the world. And that's what shapes Moses' presentation in Genesis 1. 
Now we can see this when we look at the, the opening verse in the passage. It's familiar to all of us. In the beginning, God created the, the heavens and the earth. Now, this is significant as an opening statement because it's making an argument from the very first words of the passage that it was God who did this. It wasn't the Egyptian sun god Ra. It wasn't the Canaanite god Baal. It wasn't the Babylonian god Marduk who created the universe. Moses is beginning this whole argument with the idea that it was God who created the heavens and the earth. Now, sometimes when I'm teaching this to my students, I'll talk about the fact that Genesis is a victim of its own success. You see, Moses is trying to argue for a different understanding, that it was God who created, and not these other gods in the ancient Near Eastern world. We approach Genesis with an understanding that we're not generally thinking that it was Ra who created. We're not thinking that it was Marduk who created. And so we tend to focus on the wrong things sometimes. There's actually something more interesting going on here than just that, though. You see, here Moses uses the, the generic name for God, the, the Hebrew word Elohim. Steph talked about the difficulty of learning Hebrew. We're not going to do tons of Hebrew here, but we are going to talk about a couple of different names for God here. But this is the same Hebrew word that means gods. So if someone was going to talk about the, the gods of the nations, they'd talk about Elohim. It's not a proper name, even though it's used to refer to God throughout the Old Testament. And it would have been understood by Moses' original audience as a, a generic term for God. And now, I want to be clear that even though this is a plural noun, that Elohim can refer to gods, the verbs that are used are singular. So there's no question that we're talking about a single God. But the point I'm trying to make is that Moses is starting out by saying some God created the heavens and the earth. He doesn't specify which one by name. Now he then goes on and he describes creation in terms that are radically at odds with how creation would have been understood in the ancient or eastern world in which this text was written. You see, ancient or eastern texts from this region all have multiple gods involved in creation. There's usually a war among the gods, some sort of battle, some sort of chaos that is, uh, that is going on that ultimately results in creation. And the gods create ultimately using some type of pre-existing matter. They're not creating out of nothing. In one account, after a war among the gods, the Babylonian god Marduk kills another goddess. By the way, gods and goddesses can die in the ancient Near Eastern world. And that's a difference between the biblical presentation of God and these other, these other gods. But Marduk kills one of the other goddesses, and he, he splits her corpse in two. And this Babylonian text says he splits her corpse in two like a shellfish. How's that for a vivid, uh, a vivid picture? Uh, he splits her corpse in two like a shellfish, and from that, Marduk creates the heavens and the earth. The Genesis account has none of this. There's no battle among the gods. In fact, in, in verse 2, where it says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In Hebrew, the word deep is the Hebrew equivalent of the name of that goddess whose corpse was split in two. And yet, in Genesis chapter 2, it's not a goddess. It's simply the deep. The deep is nothing to be feared, nothing to be killed, and it's not a corpse to be split. 
Instead, Moses goes on and he says in verse 3 that Elohim said, let there be light, and there was light. Creation unfolds in the rest of, of the chapter with God speaking and things appearing. No other ancient Near Eastern creation account shows such a powerful God as this. This God speaks and worlds appear. Now if we jump down to verse 16, uh, it's day four of creation. We see something else that I think is, is significant. There it says that Elohim, God, made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. But I want for us to notice how the, the sun and the moon are referred to here. It talks about the, the greater light and the lesser light. Now, we might read that and think, well, that's just a, an Old Testament way of talking about the sun and the moon. It's, it's, it's more poetic in that way, and that's just how they did it. Except that's not how they did it. They have words for the sun, and they have a word for the moon, and they're used frequently in the Old Testament. In fact, this is the only place, except for Psalm 136, where the sun and the moon are referred to as the greater light and the, the lesser light. In every other place, actually including in Psalm 136, the Hebrew words for sun and moon are used. So, why not here? In the ancient Near Eastern world, the sun and the moon were associated with gods. And the name of the Canaanite sun god, Shamash, this happy looking gentleman here, um, the, the name of the Canaanite sun god, Shamash, is almost identical to the Hebrew word for the sun, Shemesh. The same is true for the Canaanite moon god, and, and the Hebrew word for moon. Presumably, Moses doesn't refer to the sun and the moon by name, but instead the greater light and the lesser light, because he wants to avoid any association with the idea that the sun and the moon are gods. He wants to avoid giving any legitimacy to the idea that the sun and the moon are anything other than lights created by and under the authority of the God who created them. I think it's significant as well that Moses describes the creation of the sun and the moon on day four of creation. They're not the first things that are created. Maybe this is an intentional slap, so to speak, to the Egyptian sun god Ra, who is considered to be a, a particularly important god among the Egyptians. But the sun isn't the most important thing that is created, and it's certainly not a god. Similarly, at the end of verse 16, we note where Moses says that God also created the stars. The stars were considered by some people in this region to be semi-divine entities that exerted control over the lives of human beings. This is where we get the idea of astrology that comes out of Mesopotamia. And, and the Mesopotamians believed that the stars exerted this kind of influence over human affairs. In the Genesis creation account, though, the stars are an afterthought. God creates the, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. Oh, and he also created the stars. The stars are nothing to be concerned with. They're just another thing that God created. They're nothing to be afraid of. They're nothing to be worshipped. And we could say so much more about this, but I want to draw our attention now to verses uh, 26 through 28. Here, God creates human beings. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Uh, let's see. Whoops. I think that's a duplicate, uh, duplicate slide. But um, anyway, we'll, uh, we'll go on there. But here, the creation of, uh, of human beings is the pinnacle of God's creative work. The, the climax, so to speak, of all that God did is the creation of human beings. There's actually a Hebrew structure that points to this fact. Sometimes people will say, well, really the Sabbath is the pinnacle of creation. But there's a Hebrew structure that says that it's the creation of human beings that is the pinnacle of, of creation. And human beings are said to be created in the image of God. They alone in all of creation are given this designation. And this doesn't mean that they look like God. Instead, it means they were given the privilege of being his image bearers, his representatives in the created order. In the ancient Eastern world, kings would sometimes give their, their signet ring to a trusted advisor, and the trusted advisor could then use that ring to do whatever they wanted to do, and it's as if the king had done it himself. If you think about the book of Esther, this is what happens when the Persian king gives his signet ring first to Haman and then later to Mordecai. And, and, of course, the king is bound by the things that his prime ministers do in his name. That's sort of an analogy of what God does in creation and, in, and giving human beings the privilege of being his image bearers. He's giving them, in a sense, the signet ring, the authority to rule and reign in his name. And, and so from a Genesis perspective, what human beings are supposed to do in living their lives as they exercise this dominion over the created order is they're supposed to ask themselves, you know, WWYD, what would Yahweh do in this, uh, in this situation and act accordingly? But once again, this stands in radical contrast to the beliefs and practices of the people around the Israelites. In most of the ancient Near Eastern world, human beings were an afterthought. The gods didn't care about human beings. The Mesopotamians believed that human beings were created simply to relieve the gods of the, the indignity and the drudgery of work. The, it's significant that in Genesis, God is described as working and then resting. Work is not beneath the dignity of this God. And human beings are created not to relieve God of his work, but to represent him. The gods in the ancient Eastern world, as I say, didn't care about the people in their territories. They just wanted them to provide them with sufficient food and drink and sex and through, their, through the system of, of worship and offerings. So Genesis stands in contrast to that. And then we need to take a quick look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, because this gets at uh, something important related to what I was saying before. After presenting an account of creation that's utterly radical in the ancient or eastern world, and in which we noted that the generic name for God is used, Elohim, something special happens in Genesis 2, verse 4. In Genesis 2, 4, it says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens. And throughout Genesis chapter 2, we find that Yahweh and Elohim are put together in that chapter, making clear that the Elohim of Genesis chapter 1 is Yahweh. After describing the astounding power and creativity of this God in this generic term, Moses finally identifies him. This unrivaled and this unparalleled God is none other than Yahweh, 
the God of the Israelites. He clearly is not just the God of the Israelites or some localized territory as the ancient Near Eastern gods were considered to be. He is God of the whole earth. There is none like him, period. I want to suggest that for Moses' original audience, this was the moment when chills run down their spines. They were familiar with the ancient Near Eastern and Egyptian conceptions of creation and that these creation accounts that depicted the gods as limited in power, creating out of chaos and battles. Throughout chapter 1, Moses leads his audience to wonder, which God is this? Which God has such power? And then in Genesis 2-4, they get the answer. It's Yahweh. It's their God, the one who created and who created in such a remarkable way. And their God is the one who promises that he'll be with them in their calling and mission to be witnesses to the world of who God is and what he's up to in this world. I mentioned before that Moses is writing to shape the worldview of the Israelites. He's inviting them to move beyond their limited conceptions of who God is and to understand the cosmic plans that they have been invited to participate in. That's the purpose that shapes the presentation in Genesis. I sometimes refer to Genesis 1 as, as God's divine smackdown of the, the false conceptions of ancient Near Eastern gods. Now, I hope you can see that this approach to Genesis 1 is very different from one that focuses on our questions. We can see this further by engaging in a thought experiment. I want for us to, to take a moment and imagine that through the, the miracle of time travel, we're transported back to Mount Sinai. For those of you of a certain age, this, uh, this time machine will mean something. Uh, otherwise, just take my word for it that it's a, a time machine. Um, so imagine that we can go back in time, and we're at Mount Sinai, where the Israelites were gathered to learn about who God is and to understand what it means to be in relationship with him. An announcement is made that there's going to be a, a sacred gathering that day to hear something from Moses, the leader of the Israelites, the one whom God knew face to face. And suppose that word leaks out that what Moses is going to talk about is creation. As people are walking to the assembly, they, they're talking excitedly about what they know about creation accounts. The book of Numbers tells us, for example, that there were Canaanites and Mesopotamians among the Israelites who would have uh, grown up, perhaps, with these understandings. But suppose they're walking to the assembly, and they're talking about uh, this, what they're about to hear, because they've learned that it's about creation to come. And one person says, I love the battles between the gods. And another person says, my favorite part is when the goddess is ripped apart in order to, to make the heavens and the earth. Maybe someone who remembers the stories of, of the God of the Israelites wonders and says, I wonder if Yahweh is the one who killed the goddess instead of Marduk. Then they arrive and Moses begins his account. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty and darkness hung over the surface of the deep. And Elohim said, let there be light. And there was light. And the radical story then continues. There's no battle. There's no corpses. Everything that's worshipped as gods by the people of the ancient Near Eastern world is said to be created by Elohim. And then Moses reads Genesis 2 verse 4. He says, this is the account in the day that Yahweh Elohim created the earth and the heavens. 
Again, that's the moment the chills run down the spines of the Israelites. Now imagine that we're there with our time machine, and the words Yahweh Elohim are echoing off the mountain. And, and we, through our time machine, are able to approach one of the Israelites and gather there and talk to them. And, and we tap them on their shoulder and we say, now those 24-hour days that Moses talked of, are those seven 24-hour literal days? Or was that a, a seven-day week? And, and what's the deal? What's the mechanics of creation? What's that Israelite going to say in response to us? Didn't you hear? Our God is the one who created. Our God is unlike any God that anyone has ever heard of. And he'd probably think we were crazy to not understand the point that Moses was making. He'd probably think we were dressed funny too, but that's another thing. My point is that Moses wasn't writing to refute Darwinism. He was writing to refute the Darwin of his day. He was writing to present the truth of who God is, and he shaped the creation account in order to accomplish that purpose, not to address the mechanics of creation, not to do any number of things that we would like him to address. So for me, I'm agnostic on certain questions that, that we think Genesis answers, and I'm agnostic on them, not because I don't think they're important, but because Genesis doesn't answer them for me. I'm not an expert on science. I'm something of an expert on Genesis. And, and so I can feel more comfortable saying what Genesis affirms and, and leave it at that. We experience culture shock when we bring our expectations into reading the Bible, just as surely as we experience culture shock when we bring our expectations with us into another human culture. So what's the takeaway from all of this? How should we read narratives more effectively? I want to suggest a, a few considerations to keep in mind as we approach these texts. The first thing is to remember that you are not the audience. No biblical text was written specifically with us in mind. We have to do some homework to figure out how the texts are, are relevant for us. They are relevant for us. They're, they're important for us. But they're not relevant for us in the sense that Moses had us in mind when he wrote. Next, we need to ask the key interpretive question. And that question is, what did the original audience, I'm sorry, what did the original author intend to communicate to the original audience? That's a key question, not just for biblical narratives, but for every text that we read. And it helps us to stay focused on the right questions. It helps us to focus on the questions that the author is addressing, not the ones we wish that uh, they would address. Third, we need to think cross-culturally. Remember, you're going on a cross-cultural trip every time you open your Bible. You can't expect things to be the same as they are at home, even if many things look and feel familiar. You need to always think about how that different culture affects our understanding of what it is that we're reading. Fourth, we need to be humble. None of us has a perfect and unassailable understanding of the text. The text is without error, but that doesn't mean that our interpretations are. I've been a professional Bible scholar for nearly 25 years, and there's still so much that I have to learn. I see new things, and I gain new insights all the time. We should never approach any text as if we have it mastered, and as if there's nothing more that we can learn from it. And then finally, related to that, we need to be a lifelong learner. Interpreting biblical narratives isn't rocket science, but it does take some work. Knowing the culture and the worldview of the original author and audience doesn't come just from rereading the text. 
we can read it over and over again, and we won't necessarily recognize these things. So we need to seek to be intentional about learning more about the culture and history of the biblical world. Here's where good Bible dictionaries and, and encyclopedias and commentaries come into play. There are books written on the culture of the biblical worlds. And I'd encourage you to commit to uh, including some of that in your reading as part of your efforts to grow in your ability to interpret and appreciate the biblical texts. Now, we've just sort of scratched the surface here, but my prayer is that each of you will become more confident uh, and more confident cross-cultural travelers as you continue to seek to engage with and understand God's words more deeply. And I pray that it's going to result not just in knowing more about God's word, but that you'll know the God who inspired it better, and that knowing him better, you'll love him more deeply and be able to serve him more effectively. God bless you.